0: She yeah, said, "I don't have a torch, though." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was wondering why they get no response from me. Was I didn't come into church today? Jesus this is your word and I just pray that um, you would enlighten our darkness that the word would be alive to us that our hearts would be strangely warmed by your word and Lord the way you draw us closer and closer to you we just want all the glory and all the honor to be yours because Lord we're your people we remember that we're but dust and your hands have made us, and you breathe life into us, and we rejoice in you. And so we just thank you for your word, Lord, and pray that it would be alive to each and every one of us in your name. Amen. We're going to um, eventually be in the first chapter of a book that you all read and love Malachi. I'm sure everybody's read it at least once in the last month or so. But before I do that, I want to just briefly look at the Old Testament prophets in general. Sadly, a lot of people look at the Old Testament prophets and they read one or two verses that happen to blend in with whatever message they want to give and then the rest of it is just it's just not there. They don't read it. They don't understand the totality of the message and that's not very good for us understanding what God wants to do in our lives. A lot of people think that the prophets focus on social justice because that's the message that they are interested in in their own lives and what they want to see the world focus on. And the prophets talk about social justice. They talk about widows and orphans and uh, justice to those that are oppressed. So it's not that they don't talk about it. But the problem with focusing only on social justice is that it makes you have too optimistic a view of the general condition of mankind and when you focus on that you think that you're going to give a message that's going to change people and going to revolutionize them and the society and it doesn't happen the prophets rather than that say things like Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You're not going to change society by preaching a social gospel. It's good, but it's not the core message. You've got other people that look at the prophets and what they see when they read the prophets. They see a message unfolding the future and that's what they focus on because they want to know what God's going to do next and obviously the prophets give a lot of clear messages about the coming of Messiah about the coming of the kingdom of God and what we should expect in the future and what he's going to do but again that's not the primary message of the prophets a very small percentage of what they say has to do with unfolding the future. The primary message of the gospel is to remind the people of God of God's covenants. The covenant he made with Abraham and the covenant he made with Moses and the covenant he made with David and of the new covenant that's yet to come. They knew and applied God's law to the people. When Hosea brought God's accusation against the people and tried to show that they didn't really know God, he said this, There's no faithfulness, no love, no knowledge of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. Hosea said God wants mercy, not sacrifices. He wants a knowledge of him, not burnt offerings. Jeremiah knew that the people were twisting the words of God. They were believing in deceptive words because they were thieves, because they were adulterers, murderers and liars all the while going about worshiping God supposedly as if there was no connection between their lives and their worship and there's an intense link between the way you live and the way you worship Jesus constantly quotes the Old Testament and says it testifies of him when Paul preached to the Gentiles, the church council in Jerusalem said, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. The people, excuse me, the prophets rather, speak of the curses of the covenant, where God says, if you don't do these things, these curses will fall on you. The prophets speak about the curses for them. Because they want people to repent. They want people not to be subject to these curses. They want the people, he wants the people to come back to God. He wants them to repent. The Old Testament prophets speak on the subject of righteousness over and over again. Isaiah himself uses the word righteousness over 50 times. If we ignore the Old Testament prophets... It's the equivalent of reading a book and starting in the middle of it and you miss the whole first part. You don't know what the book is really saying because you can't connect it together. One of the marks of a genuine revival is that God's people come to know him in a deeper and a fuller way than they knew him before. Psalms 85 says, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. It's critical that we preach about the character of God. How are you going to know what God wants of you if you don't know who God is, if you don't know what his character is like? Spiritual health is impossible without doctrinal knowledge. Even though you can seek doctrinal, doctrinal knowledge for the wrong reason. You must understand it if you're going to have a true understanding of the character of God. The writings of the prophets give us wonderful and awesome insights into the character of God. In Isaiah 6, for example, we get a view of the throne room of God and how the prophet Isaiah is astonished and undone by the glory of God. If we want an example of God's patience and His long-suffering with His people and the tension between the mercy of God and the justice of God, we can look at what He says in Hosea. God says there, How can I give you up O Ephraim, and Ephraim's another name for Israel. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Adma and Zeboim are two cities in the same region with Sodom and Gomorrah that were totally destroyed by fire and brimstone. So God says, How can I make you like these two cities? I will not carry out my fierce anger. You're my people. You've committed all these sins, but I cannot give you up. The mercy of God. Long-suffering of God. Even though the prophets paint a, a black picture of sin and judgment, they also speak of a God who whose open and outstretched hand is ready to receive repentant sinners. He says, All day long, I have held up my hand to an obstinate people who walk in a way that is not good, a people who continually provoke me to my very face. All day long, God says, I'm calling you. I'm holding out my hand and you're an obstinate people. You won't listen. You won't come. Both Old Old and New Testament tell us that God's love, it's not earned, that he loves us. He doesn't love us or reward us because there's a great loveliness in us. His love comes out of his nature. It's his nature to love, and that's why he loves us. That's why he loves us even when we're sinners, even when we disobey. And the New Testament tells us that God, of course, is love. We hear it in 1 John. The Old Testament prophets say, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. There's no difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Failure to read the Old Testament prophets leads us into what theologian calls readers digest religion. It's a condensed version of God that leaves out so much so that you really don't understand the character of God because you're getting bits and pieces rather than a full picture. It's such an incomplete picture of God that you don't understand the total character of the Lord. And when we ignore the prophets, that's the kind of picture we end up with. But when we study the prophets... We see that they never cease to show us the true nature and purposes of God. We'd we like to ignore the topic of sin because it's not a pleasant subject. Who wants to hear about sin all the time? But the prophets won't allow us to ignore it or to shy away from it at all. They take sin seriously because God takes it so seriously. You get expressions like this from the prophets. From the sole of the foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness in it, only bruises and sores and raw wounds. That's what Isaiah says. Jeremiah says, the heart's deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can know it? He says, my people have forgotten me days without number a realistic view of sin is a prerequisite for understanding the grace of God you've got to have that it gives a clearer and more intense appreciation of divine forgiveness how are you going to understand why you need to be forgiven if you don't understand how awful sin is in the sight of God The prophets remind us that grace is supposed to be a deterrent to sin. That privilege brings responsibility. God says in Amos 3, You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Does that sound like sort of a contradiction? I've chosen you out of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I'm going to punish you for your sins. He says this because he loves them desperately and he wants them to repent and to, re- and to receive the full measure of his grace. He loves you, therefore he's going to discipline you. If he doesn't love you, he leaves you alone in your sin. So, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. We have to know the problem before we can seek a remedy. When, when I read this, it reminded me of, of in the book of Acts with um, Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira when they lied to the Lord. You know, He punished them because without punishing them for lying, the church thinks it's okay. But when they get punished, the church, it it blazes in front of them of what happens when you lie to God. Because of the prophets' strong idea of sin, they preach a lot about repentance. They tell us what is involved in turning to God. Their task is to remind the people of God what it meant to be the people of God. You call yourself a Christian, let me remind you what that means. You call yourself the people of Israel, the people of God, let me remind you, let me remind you what that means. So over and over again, they're given a message that they have to repeat you are the people of God, act like it. You know, most of the world is concerned with environmental pollution, and we should be. But the Hebrew prophets were concerned with another kind of pollution. They were concerned about the pollution of the heart. And the pollution of the heart leads to pollution of worship and it leads to a polluted lifestyle. And that's what Malachi accuses the people of God of having a polluted lifestyle. But when you don't, Obey God, the heart gets polluted, your lifestyle gets polluted, because you don't hold God in high esteem. Malachi is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And if you can't find it, it's again go to the very end of the Old Testament, and that's where you'll find Malachi. After Malachi speaks. God is silent for 400 years. There's no other word from God until you get into the New Testament and you hear from John the Baptist. And then when John the Baptist speaks, he takes up the message again. He calls for God's people, repent. Just a quick history. Judah, the southern kingdom, Israel was called, it was the northern kingdom. But Judah, the southern kingdom, has been conquered by the Babylonians. Many, million people led off into captivity. The Babylonians themselves, some years later, were conquered by the Medes and the Persians. The Persian king, and all this is after about 70 years, the Persian king looks favorably upon the Jews, and he allows them to go back to Jerusalem. And because of this, a lot of Jews begin to return. They go back to Judah. They go back to Jerusalem. And this was the period of time that the prophet Malachi spoke. And it's the same period of time from the Bible if you read Nehemiah and Ezra. The problems that Nehemiah and Ezra talk about are also found in Malachi. They speak out against marriage to pagan wives. Neglect of the tithe, against the evil of a degenerate priesthood, and against social sins, like looking after the widows and the fatherless. Malachi says the people have broken God's covenant with them in many ways. What's a covenant? A covenant's an agreement that binds two parties together. A covenant between God and man means God will extend the benefits of his grace to his people and they will personally commit themselves to God absolutely. God makes a covenant with Israel. You do this, I will give you this, I will be your God, I will bless you. And in return, you worship me only. You obey my word, you look to me. So, why did the people, so many of the Jews that returned to Jerusalem, turn away from God's covenant and rebel against his commandments? First of all, not everybody in Babylon wanted to return to Jerusalem. The life in Babylon had its problems but for the most of them, it wasn't that bad. Most of them, uh, physically, it was okay. They had freedom within certain limitations. Many of the Jews had material success. They had built up businesses. Uh, they made a, a, a decent living. Life was not that difficult for them. A lot of them, in fact most of them, had never seen Jerusalem before. It had been 70 years since they left. So most of them had died. And the ones that had seen Jerusalem had only seen it as a child. So they didn't want to leave a nice home, relatively speaking, and go into an unknown, to a place they knew very little about. Plus the fact that... The language of trade that the Babylonians used was Aramaic, not Hebrew. So a lot of them didn't know their Hebrew anymore. Their memories and way of life all were tied to Babylon. So a lot of them didn't want to go. Secondly, those that did return found themselves in a very difficult situation. The temple was still in ruins, the walls of the city of Jerusalem were still torn down. And the former glory of Jerusalem was gone. In fact, even when the temple was being built, the people that remembered the former temple wept because the former temple was glorious and beautiful. And the one that they were building now was nothing in comparison. So they looked at it and they wept because of the difference in the glory of the former and what they were building now. In addition, the rubble was still everywhere. And some people looked at all the the debris and said, we can never do this. It's just overwhelming. It's too much. There was also a lot of opposition to the work. It was so great from some of the people around it that didn't want the temple rebuilt that they had to work in shifts. So half the people would do the building of the temple while the other half stood guard to protect them against attacks. So the work was very, very difficult. A lot of people were forced to mortgage their possessions because it was a time of famine and food was scarce and they didn't have a whole lot to begin with. And if that wasn't difficult enough, the land had been left Unattended for 70 years. Um, the terracing that they used for crops, storms, everything had washed it away. It was very, very difficult to grow anything. There weren't that many farmers, and half of the farmers were involved in rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple, so there weren't very, very many people to do the crops. And these, plus some others, this is what Malachi was facing and so where does he start the first five verses of the first chapter of malachi says the oracle of the word of the lord to israel through malachi i have loved you says the lord but you say how have you loved us was not esau jacob's brother declares the lord yet i have loved jacob But I've hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Esau says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. You got all that? How does this make sense? First of all, he says the oracle of the word of the Lord. The oracle of the word of the Lord means the revelation of God's word that I'm bringing to you. Some translations say the burden of the word of the Lord, which means Malachi is carrying this word, heavy as it is, to the people to hear. And he begins by telling the the people of God's love. Now here he is. God loves you. And they're going, what? So you've got a back and forth between... God saying this and them saying, "Oh yeah, if you love us so much, why are we going through all this hardship? Are we God's people? Then why are we suffering? Why isn't everything wonderful for us?" You know, the prophets before, hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they prophesied that the kingdom of God was coming, that the Messianic age was the Messianic age was coming, and everything was going to be wonderful well where is it we don't have anything jerusalem's destroyed the temple's torn down people are fighting us all the time there's a famine going on we don't have any money we don't have anything how can you say god loves us so lesson for us today in this you know when things cook tough how are you going to say well if He loved me why didn't he do this how does god answer God answers, shows them what he does is he gives them a comparison between Jacob and Esau between Judah and Edom Edom is another name for Esau Israel Judah was descended from Jacob and Edom from Esau okay You've got two brothers, Jacob and Esau. God says, I love Jacob. I hated Esau. And then he shows you right here. He says, look what happened to Esau. Look what happened to Edom. You have to understand that the Bible confuses you sometimes because it uses two or three words that mean the same thing. And Esau was the elder brother. And from his descendants came the kingdom of Edom. And God says, look at Edom. Edom rebelled against me. I hated them. And look what's happened to them. They've been destroyed. They've been left desolate. Jacob, I loved. You're the descendants of Jacob. Look at your history. Look at the blessings that I have taken care of you for hundreds of years. You came out of nothing. A group of people so small, so insignificant that nobody paid any attention to you, and I blessed you, and now you're saying, "How has God loved us?" It shows the absolute blindness of the people. He's reminding them these self-righteous and critical people of the unmerited favor of God that they've received they're demanding to know how God loves them show us God how have you loved us and God says I loved you because you have existed as a people under my hand protected and given my word when nobody else in the world had my word you've got my word to know who I am that's how I've blessed you God had delivered them and shielded them throughout their history. And and Edom, who God had cursed, was left desolate. Anytime we lose the sense of wonder and amazement at God's love for us, and we get complacent, then we can be sure that we really haven't understood the word of God, the love of God at all the rest of the chapter 6 through 14 says a son honors his father and a servant his master then if I'm a father where's my honor and if I'm a master where's my respect says the Lord of hosts to you O priest who despise my name but you say I always despise your name You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to you? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun even to the setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say, The table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my how tiresome it is and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and that is lame and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock, and vows it with sacrifice a blemished animal to the Lord, for I am a great king, says the Lord of Hosts and my name is feared among the nations. Again, it's not the easiest. It's not like reading 1 John, is it? What's going on here is that the priests are offering defiled sacrifices on God's altar. And they deny it, of course. They say, you know, we haven't done this. When God says they have defiled his name, again they show that they are indignant, their nature, and that they ask, how have we despised your name? The verses say they were offering blind, crippled, and diseased animals on God's altar. They were offering animals that nobody else wanted. And God says in his word again and again, You're the offer, the best. They were going to their flocks, but this one's got a disease. We don't want him anyway. We'll give it to God. And the priests were accepting it. They didn't care. The Lord tells them, why don't you take this animal that nobody else wanted? Why don't you give it to the governor? Well, the governors were Persian governors. They would have been terrified to give it to the Persian governor as a sacrifice, as an offering, as a gift. Their lives would have been in great danger if they had done something like this. But God said, you give it to me, am I supposed to be thankful for this? In Leviticus 22, Moses is commanded by the Lord to order the priest to treat with respect The sacred offerings. The death penalty was prescribed for any priest who treated his duties lightly. And these priests don't care. They're going through the motions, they have no respect for God, no love for God, and God is bringing them the task about it. We don't have altars today for sacrifice but what Malachi is denouncing what he is condemning what was not just the way things were being done but the indifference to God that caused things to be done so poorly. They were indifferent to what God wanted. And they're God's priest. Polluted offerings on the altar is a reflection of the pollution of their heart and mind. What these priests were doing outwardly reflected the disrespect and disregard of God himself in their heart. It's impossible to claim to know God, to love God, to fear God, and at the same time willfully disregard his commandments. Anyone that fears the Lord has a conviction in his heart that the favor of the Lord is the greatest blessing in life. And anyone that disregards the Lord, that doesn't care about his disapproval, doesn't understand that this is the greatest tragedy of life. So what does Malachi mean in verse 10? Again, verse 10 says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts. Nor will I accept an offering from you. One of the difficult problems, one of the continual problems with the people of Israel It's the same problem that's faced by people of all generations. And it's the temptation to believe that doing what is right, or excuse me, that by doing what is right, that you're actually fulfilling the true intention of the law. And that's not the case. Just because you do what's right outwardly Jesus tells us all the time God looks on the heart so if I'm doing the right thing I'm giving the offering but in my heart I'm going I hate this I don't like this I wish wish I'd never given it if I'm helping you do something and the whole time I'm grumbling in my heart going I'm going to do it but I don't like it God says that's no good This is what he's talking about here. The the prophets were continually reminding the people that God demanded being as well as doing. God wants you to be righteous, not just do righteous things. Because if you're not being righteous out of your heart, the doing of righteous things has... It's not pleasing to God. You might as well quit. Because you're not fooling God. And he's the one that matters. Look at what Amos says in in, uh, chapter 5. I hate. I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring the burnt offerings. And grain offerings. I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship. Offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your hearts. And Isaiah says virtually the same thing. So Malachi says God wishes that someone would lock the temple doors to prevent the continuation of worship that's useless. I wish you would lock the doors of the temple. I don't want to see your useless worship anymore. Your useless offerings. The point is that there are no offerings that are acceptable to God if they come from people who are displeasing to him. The priests are saying that the Lord's table, meaning the place of sacrifice, and the food is contemptible, and polluted. What they're really saying is that they hold their office of the priesthood in contempt. They're bored. They're not getting what they think they deserve. And they're blaming God for conditions that they created themselves. If Christians, and in fact, you know, it ministers, Christians, all of us if we call ourselves Christians and if we're unfaithful if we show that our actions by our actions that God is contemptible and that it's a burden to serving then other people are not going to be built up and God is going to be despised among the lost because of us Malachi spoke to a disillusioned people discouraged and doubting people whose experience did not live up to the wonderful promises that they had heard from the prophets in the past and again they were overwhelmed by it they were disillusioned with god and they were disillusioned with their faith Malachi is there to light the lamp of faith in them by reminding them of God's love and his promises and he's calling them to repentance, which is what all the prophets do. Ending with Malachi in the Old Testament and continuing with John the Baptist in the New and Jesus. And that's what he does with us. He calls us to repentance. He calls us to remember that we're people of God and we're to act like people of God. And it comes from the heart, not just by the doing outwardly. Let's pray. Jesus, what can we say? We fall short. Lord, help us to repent deeply from the, with the places and the things that we do fall short in. That we might truly be your people. And that the the, the light of knowing you is reflected in what we think and what we say and what we do. Lord, we pray for hearts like your heart, eyes that are open, and a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Amen.